All right, welcome back. Welcome back to the Biblos Network. Praise the Lord, people of God. To the God lovers, the Theophili, we are so glad that you could join in with us today. God has been so very, very good. And we're trying to keep up with it. We're trying to lay hold and apprehend that for which we also are apprehended. Or as they would say in the South, trying to get a hold of that which got a hold of me. <laughs> uh, I, I say that laughingly, but if we only knew the greatness of what we had, if, if people only knew the latent, dormant, power that is accessible to sons and daughters of the most high God. I believe the church is a sleeping giant and I think it's high time to awake out of sleep. So where you are, be bold, step out, operate in the gifts of the spirit. And here's one you don't hear often operate in the fruit of the spirit. And it's probably worth saying Jesus did not say by by your gifts they shall know you. He said, by your fruits they shall know you. So, we have a hungry world, and they're hungry for the fruit. So let's bear fruit. Let's love God. Let's be the sons and daughters of God. Let's celebrate the Word of God. Let's talk about the great things of God. That is the mission of Biblos. I hope that we are successful in doing that by the grace of God. Uh, where to even start? Where to even start? I told the church the other day that we had financial miracles last week. We had physical healings last week. One man uh, contacted one of our young ladies, ran into him in the community on Monday, and she said, how are you doing? He said, I'm doing great. After this last Sunday, I understand finally who God really is. I understand the mighty God in Christ. Praise God. And what a time, what a day, what a day to be serving God. I saw many of you at the summit conference in Pigeon Forge and thank you to everybody who supported that. We were there selling Biblos merchandise and, and uh, we're going to keep on doing that. We do have our website up. If you go to the biblosnetwork.org, we have merchandise and we have hoodies and shirts and sweatshirts and I think we have our coffee mugs back up and our tumblers I'm not sure I'll double check on that but um, they told me they were going to have that up special shout out to our Biblos team they're doing a fabulous job putting stuff together and keeping it running behind the scenes for me I don't know how to operate these cameras I don't know how to to do the shipping and all that I just sit down in front of this microphone and I talk about Jesus talk about the good things of God and so the unsung heroes are the Biblos staff all right, let's talk about something that's been burning in my heart. And I don't know how long I'm going to be able to go today. Um, I'm recording this on a Tuesday. We will be posting it on Thursday. And so I have to fly out tomorrow morning. I'm preaching a conference in churches in just a little while. So we'll get what we can in here today. Um. I want to read a portion of scripture. It's found in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 11. Jesus is talking to John and he says this, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. What thou seest, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, 
unto Ephesus, unto Smyrna, unto Pergamos, unto Thyatira, unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And then when you go to Revelation chapter 3 and verse 7, it is a message to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. And he says this, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth, and no man shutteth, shutteth, and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it, for thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. This is the beautiful commendation, the, the blessing of Jesus to the leader of the church in Philadelphia, the Philadelphian church. I want to talk about that. I want to talk about the church in Philadelphia, and I want to talk about it from a surprising angle because it is connected to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And this is for everybody who tries to tell you that oneness people are a new phenomenon. A couple of weeks ago, I did a session on Michael Servetus and how in the 1500s, John Calvin murdered him, burning him at the stake. Um, Calvinists and Trinitarians try very, very hard to run away as quickly as they can from that set of circumstances. They want to say that Calvin wasn't there. They want to say that he reluctantly got involved with it. And it's kind of a, a historical whitewash. But then again, all of the Trinity is a historical whitewash. And so this session that I'm bringing to you today is for all of the parking lot prophets that want to try to tell you that oneness believers are a small group, that they, they are a recent thing from the early 1900s, that in a, in a kind of a condescending way, they want to make them look backwards and, and cultic and ignorant at the end of the day. It, it's actually mind-boggling to me that they can contend for a doctrine that if you were to go to Peter, James, and John and say, could you teach me about the Trinity, they would go, the what? Huh? What's, what did, what's Trinity? They wouldn't know what you were talking about. Peter, James, and John never heard the word Trinity. It was never spoken in their presence. To identify the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost as three separate persons, they never taught that. It's not in the Bible. But yet there will be people that will contend for that and will fight for it and will kill for it. Today, they don't physically kill any longer. Thank the Lord for that. But uh, <laughs> I say that tongue-in-cheek because I've been in some conversations where if they could have killed, or maybe I'll say if looks could kill, I might not be here. I might have gone on to see Jesus. But it's like the apostle said, after the way which they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers. John Calvin was there. There are eyewitness accounts of it. There are letters showing his animosity, his rage towards 
Servetus. And it can't be denied. And, and the more that comes to light, the more of a dark pall and shadow it casts over what some call the greatest reformer ever. Um, so that was Michael Servetus. I'm not actually going to talk about Servetus today. I'm going to talk about a man that came 100 years later who was impacted by Servetus and who took a stand like Servetus and who believed the oneness like Servetus. So what I want you to do is I want you to take some time this week. This is to the Biblos audience. This is to um, the Bibliophiles, the Theophili. I want you to go to Google and I want you to type in this phrase, a sandy foundation shaken by William Penn. A sandy foundation shaken by William Penn. That William Penn, the William Penn, the man who founded Pennsylvania, the man who founded Philadelphia. Before I get ahead of myself, let me, let me lay the groundwork for this. William Penn wrote a book, a, a treatise, a pamphlet, you might call it, on the oneness of God. And in it, he said that the primitive church never taught the Trinity. He taught that, that the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost being three separate persons is an abomination to God. He called it a doctrine of devils. He, he talked about the Mohammedans and the Jews soundly rejecting the Greco-Roman constructs of the Trinity. He sounds like I would like to interview him on Biblos. If William Penn was here, one of the founders of what would eventually become the United States of America, if he was here right now, we could have a good conversation on the evil of the Trinity and how many people were murdered and burned at the stake to propagate that false doctrine. And I'm, I'm using strong language, but when you read the Sandy Foundation shaken, this was before the days of PR and political correctness, PC talking. They, old William didn't pull any punches. He went straight for the jugular and he was very plain in how he talked. He called it a Romish philosophy. He, he, he wrote strongly against Calvin, and he was influenced by the murder of Servetus and the fact that Calvin was a murderer. So Calvinists have that in their lineage. And if you ever get into an argument with a Calvinist or you ever get into a, an argument with someone who is really, really contentious about the Trinity, you'll feel their anger and their rage. That's because it is an error. It is a false doctrine, and all error proceeds forth from the father of lies. The Bible calls it doctrines of devils. It calls it seducing spirits. And Colossians 2 said that we are not to be, we're to beware. Um, we're not to be spoiled by philosophy, which is exactly what the Trinity is. Justin Martyr and all of the other apologists that were trying to appeal to the Greeks and the Romans, the Gentiles that were coming into that early church, they, and, and uh, William Penn writes about this, they were using philosophic, philosophical language to try to appeal to them, and they neglected scriptural terminology, and they used carnal human rationale to try to create this doctrine uh, of the Trinity. William Penn addressed it squarely. 
and he takes the time. And the Sandy Foundation, shaken, is false religion. It's the mother, it's the harlot church, it's the mother of harlots, which is false religion, which would eventually which would eventually morph into Catholicism, a Roman Catholicism, and then all of the denominations that adopted the doctrine of the Trinity, that, that it was one of their flawed assumptions, and it is probably the biggest flawed assumption to, to hamstring the church and people of faith. And when I talk about the Trinity, I, and I'm not talking about the people who believe it, I'm not talking about sincere believers who are sincerely misled, by, by those above them, by those that should know better. But I'm talking about the doctrine itself, the ideology itself. It's a carefully crafted, cunningly devised fable. And um, the Bible says that in the doctrine of the Father, uh, the doctrine of Christ, uh, how, how is it? it's Colossians 2, as you have received God, the mystery of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, when we lose that, we lose the very foundation the scripture itself is built upon. And so the, the greatest commandment in the Bible is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. The devil has been after that commandment since he spoke to Eve in the garden where he wanted to be like God. And Daniel in the lion's den, the three Hebrew children, the fiery furnace, all of that was to try to force Israel into a pluralist, polytheistic world. And the Trinity is the effort, the most modern and recent effort to do that, and it undermined Christianity. So anyway, I digress. Um, William Penn sees this. He knows it. He understands it, and he writes a Sandy Foundation shaken. Sandy Foundation is false doctrine. It is the false church. It is the church at Rome that would propagate other false churches. And the, the Protestant movement and all of the people that were attempting to come out of Rome, many of them were great scholars. They did good work in many ways, but they held on to that Romish doctrine of the Trinity. And William Penn takes pains to point it out. Now, this is written in the 16 and 1700s, a Sandy Foundation shaken. He wrote many, many um, pamphlets, um, and, and because of his writing, he was persecuted. They, they grew angry with him, the the civil authorities told him. Now, these are the same kind of people that persecuted Servetus. He's writing against the church, the quote-unquote church. He's writing against the Protestant church and the Catholic church. And the more he writes, he's very persuasive. He's a brilliant man. He's the son of an admiral, Admiral, admiral Penn, a very successful man, very connected, very wealthy. And here is this upstart young man with who's raised in a, among the, gen, the genteel culture, the ruling class, the upper crust of London, and he's writing these fiery papers that are devastating in their logic, and they're making people uncomfortable, and one of them was a Sandy Foundation shaken. He was basically saying that the foundation that the false church is built on is a Sandy Foundation. And the original church wouldn't recognize it. They, they did not believe in a trinity. The apostles did not believe that. They did not teach that. He points out it is not in the Bible. It is a cunning philosophical construct. Now, this is 250 years before the 1900s. So, so 
the idea that oneness Pentecostals just emerged and we just invented this oneness ideology. Peter Abelard in the 900s, uh, Michael Servetus in the 1500s, now William Penn in the 1600s and on into the 1700s, before the United States has even been founded, all of these men wrote, took a stand for, and believed with all of their heart that there was one true God who manifested himself as the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Like Servetus, they took William Penn and threw him in prison. The, the religious authorities, they took him and put him in prison. They put him in the Tower of London. So here he is in London, and he's, he's in this prison cell, and they're thinking that he'll learn his lesson and stop speaking against the Trinity. Well, he doesn't. The, the same fire that caused him to be such a patriot and such a firebrand later on in his life, in his early life as a young man, sustained him in his faith. And he said, when they, when they told him, if you'll just stop writing about oneness and one God, we'll let you out. He said, I would rather rot in prison than deny the mighty God. <laughs> what a statement. And this caused embarrassment to his father. Here he is, this greatly admired admiral. And please feel free to Google this. Check it out. Go to Wikipedia. Look up William Penn. And, and it, the whole story's there. Well, he won't. He won't recant. He won't stop. So he, he's sitting there in that prison cell and he's writing and writing and sending out more and more stuff. It's making people more and more angry. His father finally realized that his son was just not going to change. He was not going to recant and he was ready to die in that prison. He was a man ready to die for what he believed in. Now, a hundred years before that, Servetus was ready to die and they killed him. In this case, with William Penn, his father was a powerful man, an influential man, and he bought his release. He bought his release from prison, from the Tower of London. And they gave him a choice. They said, we will pay for you to go to the United States, to the New World. We will give you 40,000 acres. And there you can build a colony and you can be freed from the religious persecution here in England. This is the reformers. This is the Protestants. This is, these are the Catholics. They were, they were killing, they were imprisoning people all in the name of the Trinity. Well, William Penn took it up. He, he took them up on it. He said, I will go. And he sailed to the New World. He comes over as a Quaker. He comes over as, um, as, a, as a pilgrim. And he enters into this new world and he, he believes he's starting the new Jerusalem and he names it Philadelphia. He names it after the church in revelation chapter three. He believed that in this new world that he could found a city that would be a new Jerusalem because Philadelphia had the key of David that there was set before him an open door that no man shuts and shuts and no man opens. And that he have, you have, he had not, that church had not denied his name. So there were many people who were denying the name of Jesus that were embracing the tenets of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Uh, this is 
the apostle John seeing this down the road. And before it happened, he, he called it, he prophesied it as the spirit of Christ moved on him. There would be people who would deny the name of Jesus, but these were people who would hold on to the name. Oneness Pentecostals hold on to the name of Jesus. We are roundly persecuted for it. We are mocked for it, but we are the people of the name the name of Jesus. We baptize in Jesus' name just like the apostles did, and it is a key tenet of the doctrine of the mighty God in Christ. It is mind-boggling to me how people will baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost and will ignore the multiplicity of accounts where they baptized in Jesus' name. Matthew 28, 19 is used as a cudgel to, to strike at people, um, and that's an interesting verse uh, that will probably be worthy of a Biblos episode another day. But they ignore Mark 16. They ignore Luke 24. They ignore John 20. They ignore Acts 2. They ignore Acts 4, Acts 8, 10, and 19. Uh, they ignore Romans 6, 1 Corinthians 1, Galatians 3, Colossians 2. All of them that teach to varying degrees that the name of Jesus is the only efficacious name and it is the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And when you baptize in Jesus' name, you are getting the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. But if you were to baptize in the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, you are losing the one thing that can redeem you because there's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And I can hear it now. I've heard it before. Uh, many, many people who feel that baptism is inconsequential. They feel that the name of Jesus doesn't matter. This is who John the Revelator is addressing. You have not denied my name. Those that say you should not baptize in Jesus' name, they are denying the name. They're denying the day of Pentecost. They're denying the household of Cornelius. <clears throat> and some will say that when it says name, it doesn't mean the invocation of the name, but it means the authority. And they go to Acts chapter 4 where they ask the question, by what name or by what authority have you done this thing? And they try to make that analogous and do away with the name. The problem is Peter preached that his name, through faith in his name, hath made this man strong. <laughs> um, James said that worthy name that is called over you there is a calling on the name of Jesus. Acts 22, arise, wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. There is an oral invocation of the name of Jesus that has sin-remitting power, and we are baptized in that name. And if you uh, insist that, that you're to be baptized in the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, and that's not a formula, then there is no formula. If, if, if names and, and the, the speaking doesn't matter, then you could baptize in the day spring and the alpha and the omega or the shepherd and the scapegoat and um, the wonderful counselor. <laughs> you could choose any titles that you wanted to, but, but there was a name that is above every name that has authority and precedence, and we speak that name. We do not deny that name. The church at Philadelphia had this reputation, and William Penn fought for that. He came to the new world. He founded this great city. It exploded with growth, uh, one of the very first cities to ever be settled here in the United States of America. William Penn went down in history as one of the greatest men, one of the greatest men. We, we look to him as a founding father. We look to him 
as the inspiration <clears throat> for Benjamin Franklin and for Thomas Jefferson and James Madison. He is an inspiration for George Washington. Um, all of these great fathers were preceded by William Penn, and William Penn was anti-Trinity. He was oneness. He believed in the oneness of God, the unity, the numerical unity of God. So the, the, he fought against the corruption of that idea. He continually referred to the primitive church. Why are you saying this, Brother Urshan? The reason I'm saying this is because there are men out there. They make YouTube videos. They, they try to come against and fight against and rail against the doctrine of the oneness of God. Um, and they try to say that this began in the 1900s. It did not. There is a wealth of documented history. Interestingly, William Penn, you couldn't burn his books. He was too popular. He was too wealthy. He wrote many treaties on many different topics, and he published them all throughout England. They tried to destroy them just like they did Servetus' book, but he was too prolific. He wrote voluminous volumes of theological insight. A sandy foundation shaken. It is still being shaken. So don't let anybody talk you out of the fact that the word one means one. It means numerically one. People want to say that the word echad means plural unity, and there are some places in the Old Testament that it does. Shema Israel Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. That Echad, they want to say it means plural unity. It is just like the word one in English. The context defines it. Whatever context you're putting with it means it's either singular or it has a plural unity concept behind it. <clears throat> but it is never considered plural unity when it comes to the Godhead. That is considered an abomination to the Hebrew mind. And so, this, the condescension, condescension that comes from people that want to fight against oneness, fight against the mighty God in Christ, we are not going to deny his name. We are going to hold fast. And what John said in Revelation, we are going to keep his word. You can't keep his word with the Trinity because it's not in his word. But you can keep the word that there's one God. Not only is it mentioned over 300 times in the Bible, but it's things like no God beside me, none beside me, none before me, none after me. Is there any beside me? Yea, I know not any. This is a terrible communication for a God who's trying to get the point that he's three across. There's nothing more antithetical to the word of God than a plurality in the Godhead. So don't let anybody talk you out of that. Don't let anybody spoil you like Colossians chapter 2 says. I don't care about their tone of voice. Uh, and note that, please. Um, many times they will speak with authority. They will speak um, in a condescending manner. They will make fun of people. They will use manipulative tactics to try to get people to feel bad about themselves. But 
Some of us got a little book learning along the way, what I like to call a little education, and we got to reading this thing for ourselves. We got to where we could speak Greek and speak Hebrew. And in Greek, it is even more powerfully stated. And Hebrew, it is very powerfully stated about, about the oneness, the numerical oneness of God. So take heart, be encouraged. If you have friends that are being seduced by um, those who are good at talking, that are charismatic in their presentation, that use emotional tools to, to try to push you into believing something else, don't fall for it. Um, the Bible says they lie in wait with cunning craftiness. Um, and with fair speeches, they deceive the, the minds of the simple. That's what the apostles, that's how they described it. But we've got the word of God that we're going to stand on. And the greatest commandment in the Bible is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, the Shema. The devil wants it. He cannot have it. We've got a firm grasp on it. We're going to keep his word. We are not going to deny his name. This is the church at Philadelphia. It is where Philadelphia, Pennsylvania comes from. William Penn, a oneness believer that was ready to die for what he believed in, left a paper trail behind him so that we could look back and realize great men stood for this. So they tried to burn the books. They tried to destroy the books, but several of them survived, and thank God they did. Oneness Pentecostalism did not just begin in the early 1900s. It has been here since the apostles. It has been persecuted. It has been uh, fought against. It has been resisted, but it's God's church and he gave his life for it, and we know exactly who he is. So I hope that helps you today. I'm afraid I'm a little short on time, so I will cut this episode shorter than usual, but we will be back, never fear. Um, Biblos family, we will be back, and we'll be talking about more great things concerning the kingdom of God. So until next time, God bless you, and God keep you, and God cause his face to shine upon you.